Before we begin this edition of Tim Talks Politics Podcast, I just want to let you know, if you are interested in supporting the podcast in any active way, there are two ways you can do that that I'd greatly appreciate. First off, if you would be up for giving us a review on any uh, podcast platforms that you're listening to this podcast on, that really helps the show in terms of gaining us more visibility and, and just increasing our reach and spread. And secondly, if you're more interested in supporting the podcast and the work I do at TimTalksPolitics.com financially, you can do that a variety of ways as well. I really work hard to make sure that this is a podcast and newsletter that is devoid of all kinds of sponsored content and ads, mostly because they get really distracting and I want to keep things focused on the conversation. But that does mean that we have to offset costs other ways. So if you're interested in financially supporting Tim Talks Politics, either the podcast, the website, the newsletter, there's a variety of ways in which you can do that. You can go to our podcast website at anchor.fm backslash Tim Talks Politics and click on support. Or you can subscribe to the premium weekly newsletter, The Weekly Brief, by going to timtalkspolitics.com backslash weekly brief and subscribing there. Either way, it'd be great to per- partner with you in advancing the work of Tim Talks Politics and in bring- continuing to bring content and insight and information into our information cycle. So thanks for your support. Now let's get started. Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Hello, and welcome back to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. So glad you're here. And today we're diving into Article 2 of the Constitution. And this is part of our summer series on the Constitution. It's basically just a read-through and commentary, and it's just designed to kind of give us a working knowledge of the Constitution, its basic concepts, and its general outline, so that we can have more informed discussions about not just the Constitution as a document, but also the American government as a whole. It's not designed to be any kind of legal commentary on the Constitution. It's certainly not to be designed to be exhaustive in its uh, in its analysis of the ins and outs of constitutional law and jurisprudence. It's really just a face value, read through, what do we think it says at the front end? Uh, and it's really just to acquaint you, if you haven't read it all the way through before, if it's been a long time, to reacquaint you uh, with the Constitution and the basic structure of American government. So that's kind of what we're doing today. And today we're looking at Article 2, which is essentially the powers of the president. So it's looking at uh, the office of the president, the powers of the president, the qualifications of the president, all that good stuff. Last time we looked at Article 1 and the organization and layout and powers of Congress. So you can go back and look at that uh, if you missed that or rather listen to it if you missed it. And then in the subsequent episodes, we'll be looking at the other articles of the Constitution. They're significantly shorter than Articles 1 and 2, so we'll be grouping several of them together. And then after we've gone through the articles of the Constitution, which is essentially the the original Constitution, will dive into looking at the amendments, many of which uh, changed or adapted or updated uh, the existing articles. And so we'll look through those as we go. All right, so let's dive into Article 2 of the Constitution. Article 2, Section 1. 
The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and together with the vice president chosen for the same term be elected as follows. Okay, so it outlines right away uh, a couple of key concepts. One, the office of the president, which was a hotly debated topic in the uh, debates surrounding the uh, Constitution at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Uh, there was a really big debate over just what the nature of the presidency should be. I mean, we just fought a revolution to free ourselves of the tyranny of a monarch, and this, uh, especially to the anti-federalists, sounded like the office of a monarch. And so there was a, a desire to try to really limit the influence and power of the presidency or eliminated at all. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, founding fathers, George Mason, who I'll cite later when I quote him more extensively, uh, even argued against even having the office of the president. Uh, but this gives us the office of the president. It was a uh, it was definitely an office that was more supported by federalists, and it outlines the term of four years. Now, a key point to note here is that there's no term limits. Term limits come later in the amendments when we kind of limit everything to two terms. Uh, but the whole two-term limitation thing uh, was something that was more or less set as a president precedent by George Washington when he chose to voluntarily step down after two terms. Uh, and there's only ever been one three-term, or actually four-term president, and that's uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, although he did not live to see the end of his fourth term. Okay, so how is the president going to be elected. So here we go. We'll dive into the rest of section one here. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. And they shall make a list of all the persons voted for and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States directed to the President of the Senate. The President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be the President, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, and if there be more than one who have such majority and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for president, and if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list, the said House shall in like manner choose the president. But in choosing the president, the votes shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote, a quorum for the pur this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be vice president, but if there should remain two or more who have equal votes, the Senate shall choose from them by ballot the vice president. This is crazy. Actually, it's not that crazy. It just outlines the structure of the what we now call the Electoral College. Uh, the Electoral College is considered one of the unique elements of America's Federalist structure. Uh, it kind of preserves the, the, the reality or the realization in the American structure of, of federalism that we are a United States of America. We often just say it as a phrase, like it's one country, United States of America. But that phrase, United States, is important to this understanding of the Electoral College. The idea was that each state was actually its own sovereign political entity that was essentially 
giving some power or sharing power with the central government. And so the idea of the Electoral College uh, does a couple of things. One, it retains the the reality or the political reality that each state is its own political entity. So all 50 states now of the United States, each is its own political entity. And those political entities combine to form a bigger political entity, which is the United States of America. It's not the United States of America is one political entity, and then the states are subparts of said entity. Uh, it, it's, it's a very different orientation and perspective of how America is supposed to be organized than what we commonly understand today. That's the first reason why these electors are placed here. It preserves the recognition that each state kind of has its own say, kind of has its own stake in the presidency. But the second reason why this is uh, placed here, or the second reason why uh, the electors or the electoral college is established here is it's to add a layer of essentially quality control on the office of the presidency so that the office of the presidency does not just become some demagogic mass democracy office the founding fathers were very suspicious along with much of enlightenment uh, liberal thinking of the time very suspicious of mass democracy this was not seen as a particularly uh, well-structured form of government. Uh, democratic forms of government had been well-known in the Western world, uh, going all the way back to ancient Athens. Uh, but therein lay the problem, is that going all the way back to ancient Greece, the problems of democracy, the, the tendency of demagogues to become all-powerful and just uh, manipulate the masses were well-known. And that's why uh, even great thinkers like the father of political science, Aristotle, uh, spoke openly of uh, or critically, I should say, openly and critically, of democracy as not being a great form of government. It's only later as we get into the kind of like post-American Revolution world that democracy comes to mean something different, something not mass dem democracy. We start talking about things like a representational democracy or a republican democracy. And that's more or less what this view of America or this structure of the, of the American government is setting out. And the Electoral College is an important way of demonstrating that, that this is not just a, uh, a mass election across the whole nation. It's essentially today 50 state elections uh, that are saying what they, the states want. And that's, what the, that's the function of the Electoral College. That's the role it serves. Uh, it's to prevent any one individual from kind of manipulating the masses of the country uh, and becoming essentially a majoritarian tyranny. So that's kind of the general idea. Now, uh, as I'm recording this in the summer of 2020, uh, the Supreme Court just recently handed down a ruling on uh, related to the Electoral College and, and related to this segment and discussion of the Constitution. And that was essentially ruling that state governments could mandate that the electors basically uh, basically vote for who the state votes for. Uh, and the reason this even had to be a decision was uh, is that, strictly speaking, electors could, if they so chose, uh, vote for someone or vote for a presidential candidate who did not win the popular vote within the state they're representing. These are called faithless electors. And uh, in a couple of instances in the 2016 election, a few electors uh, chose not to or tried not to uh, vote the way their state voted uh, in the general election and were thereby essentially disciplined by their state. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure of the particulars of what that discipline looked like, but essentially the Supreme Court just ruled that, yeah, states can do that. Uh, and it's kind of outlined here. Now, this uh, section that I just read is affected by uh, 
the 12th Amendment, which we'll get to when we look at the amendments. But essentially what's not affected is the fact that states actually get to set the rules of who their electors are, how they're chosen, uh, and what's expected of them, essentially, uh, as they go to that. Now, this is really important because the Electoral College is actually only the second step in the presidential election. So when we look at when we think about the different stages in the presidential election, it's really important to note that there's several stages. Now, we're kind of trained in our 21st century America to kind of like watch the news on election night, see who's declared the winner. And then it's like, that's the that's the winner. That's the new president. But that election result is not certified until the Electoral College meets in December and all the electors from the different states more or less vote the way their states voted. And then after that, the results of the Electoral College are sent to Congress who meets uh, in a joint session and certifies the vote. So the the vote is not, it's kind of like a formality at that point, but it's kind of like this three-stage process to certify the results of the election. And so think about, I, I, I kind of emphasize this to, to kind of make the argument that this actually creates a really cohesive and strong uh, bit of quality control in ensuring that, uh, that elections are done properly, that elections are, that there's no foul play in elections, certainly not any foul play that would uh, markedly change the outcome. Um, and of course, we've had elections that have gone that far. And this is what's really fascinating is that if there is a tie between more, you know, two or more people uh, at the counting of the ballots in the joint session of Congress, the House of Representatives then moves uh, to, uh, then moves to basically vote for the president, uh, which is kind of surprising. So I guess it's not really a tie. It's basically if no one can come up with a majority of the electors. So I guess you could have it split evenly or split just so that someone gets, you know, less than the necessary, you know, half plus one majority. So it's a, it's a fascinating sequence, but I've generally found that this uh, staged sequence of events are, are more or less there to protect the integrity of the election. Uh, and that's what we're uh, that's what we kind of see being aimed at here. And, you know, it's important to acknowledge that because in a day and age where especially after 2016, where there when there were questions of uh, Russian interference and foul play, uh, this kind of multi-staged process generally allows for a certain degree of error checking, uh, checking on ballots, allowing for any legal challenges on or recounts to be done prior to. Uh, the uh, Electoral College meeting to more or less certify the vote and then recertify the vote uh, in the joint session of Congress. So even in a imperfect world where votes can be manipulated, miscounted, late, you know, missed, or a foreign power can try to influence the election, the fact of the matter is we have these processes in place to kind of check back, check back against that and preserve the integrity of the election, which is pretty awesome. Okay, let's keep going. The Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. So again, uh, the states appoint the electors, but it's Congress that determines when they get chosen, where they, yeah, and how they, uh, not how they get chosen, but when they get chosen and when they need to meet to vote so that they can move the process forward. And I think that's sometime in early December. So we usually have uh, the general election in November, the meeting of the Electoral College in uh, the meeting of the Electoral College in December, and then Congress certifies that vote. I think it's in early January, 
Uh, and so you kind of have like each of these stages in a month. So you have several weeks at which, you know, these, um, these corrections and adjustments, if need be, can be made. So, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting to see how it sta it's staged out that way. That's why you can have somebody win an election, a presidential candidate win an election in November, and then they're not in inaugurated until, you know, end of January. All right, now let's get into the qualifications of the office. No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. So these are just the qualifications of office. There, there have been qualifications for all the offices of the Senate, and it's kind of interesting how you see that increase of five years. So... Uh, you had to be 25 to run for the House. You had to be 30 to run for Senate. You have to be 35 to run for uh, president, uh, which is kind of interesting. And this, there's also this idea here or this point here that you have to be a natural born citizen. Uh, in other words, you have to be the parent. Uh, you have to be the, um, the child of American citizens. Uh, you can't you know, you can't be an immigrant uh, to America and run for president. You can be an immigrant and become a member of Congress. You can be an immigrant and become a governor of a state, uh, but you can't become president of the United States. Okay, let's talk about how uh, the president may be removed from office. Now, this is also impacted by an amendment, the 25th Amendment. We'll get to that later, but this is the original wording. In case of the removal of the president from office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve to, on the vice president, and the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability both of the president and vice president declaring what officer shall then act as president and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or a president shall be elected. So this is just placing, putting in place uh, a, you might say, a, um, a sequence of individuals who will take on the office of president in case the president uh, dies in office or is otherwise incapacitated for whatever reason. Uh, and then uh, this is uh, helpful to note that we're basically trying to establish a uh, a chain of succession, a chain of command, uh, so or succession, I should say, so that um, so that there's no, you know, there's no break in having the office filled. This is why you have things like a designated survivor, who's a cabinet uh, secretary, who you know sits in the White House while the president gives the inaugural address and things like that. The president shall, at stated times, receive for his services a compensation which shall neither be incre increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected, and she he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. Uh, so when it says United States or any of them, it means the United States, the country, or any individual state. So you get one paycheck for being president. You're not going to get a raise. You're not going to get a, a, a pay cut uh, during your term. You've got that uh that pay and no other state or the country as a whole is going to give you a bonus. It's a flat fee for being president. And the idea of this is definitely to limit corruption, make sure that this is not this does not become a office of personal enrichment, but that the focus is on public service. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. So this is the presidential oath of office. And it's interesting that it is uh, placed here in the Constitution again. And a lot of this is again. A lot of this is to uh, assure a consistency uh, within the office and integrity within the institution. Uh, to you know, build public trust, maintain you know, set some standards that can be maintained and and can be you know, evaluated on a somewhat comparative basis across time and uh, 
different people who hold the office. So here's the oath of office. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully ex execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Now, every president uh, since George Washington, George Washington and onwards, has also added at the end of this oath, so help me God. But it's important to note that that is not a part of the constitutionally required oath of office. It is, that is a tradition of state. And it's a tradition of state because it was started by George Washington, uh, who added uh, that phrase at the end. But I guess you could say uh, you could have an atheist president who doesn't believe in God, who chooses not to include that phrase at the end, and he'd still, you know, he or she would still be constitution constitutionally legitimate in terms of, you know, saying the right oath. Now, I think what's interesting about this oath is that it's kind of divided into two parts. The individual will faithfully execute the office of the president of the United States, so you know, basically carry out the responsibilities and duties of it. But then there's this second half, or this second element, or or you might say this kind of like this, you know, you have a lot of duties as the president, but this is the one you have to focus on. And that is preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So this document that we're going through is seen as, you know, this is this is what defines America kind of thing. You you lose this constitution or you fail to uphold it or protect it, you you basically lose America is kind of the idea behind it. It's a it's a weighty charge and it's uh, it's a significant charge at that. Section two. The president shall be commander-in-chief of the army and navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States except in cases of impeachment. So in other words, uh, if the president gets impeached and removed from office, he can't, uh, he can't basically give himself a pardon or a reprieve. He shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice of the consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law, but the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the President alone in the courts of law or in the heads of departments. The president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. So this actually starts to outline uh, the duties and responsibilities of the president. So the first one is commander-in-chief. Uh, the, uh, the president gets to literally and figuratively call the shots uh, in terms of the deployment and use of the military. Uh, he, also, uh, he or she also gets to oversee uh, the operation of the executive branch and the federal bureaucracy, uh, the day-to-day -day operations and leadership. So it's still Congress that controls the purse strings, basically you know, assigns the budgets and everything. But when it comes down to what those federal bureaucracy, you know, those federal bureaucratic offices do, like the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, Department of State, you know, Department of Education, Treasury, etc., uh, the day-to-day -day business of those are still being, you know, the, the, the policy priorities are being set by uh, by the president. The president also has uh, power uh, to 
set treaties to make treaties. Now, the, the key point here is that you're doing it with the advice and consent of the Senate. So we've had many no notable instances in American history where presidents have negotiated treaties, gotten treaties, and then the Senate has not approved them. So Woodrow Wilson's uh, Paris Peace Agreement in 1919 at the end of World War One that established the League of Nations is a notable example here of the president you know, for the first time directly negotiating an international treaty and then, um, and then only to have the Senate reject it and not uh, support it. The president also gets to basically appoint a lot of uh, federal officials, mostly basically anyone who is going to be representing the United States in any uh, major capacity uh, as a country, whether they're ambassadors, public ministers and consuls, so you might hear about these czars for different uh, things. Uh, so those, when you have like, a, uh, I think... Uh, who were they? I, you know, they talk about like a, a drug czar who's overseeing drug policy or something like that. Uh, these individuals are not necessarily cabinet secretaries, but they have uh, that level of authority, but they're there to more or less coordinate policy across the entire bureaucracy for a specific topic or something like that. Those are all presidential appointees. Uh, they appoint judges to the Supreme Court, other judges in lower courts and and all that. And then and then you rather unique uh, power of the president and the one the presidents have often deployed to kind of like uh, do an end run around the Senate who might be appoint, uh, opposing them is to make recess appointments. Now, there's a caveat to these recess appointments is if you appoint someone to any of the offices that uh, you're allowed to appoint someone to as president, if you do that without the Senate um, consent, then you only get to appoint them for as long as, you know, this next session of Congress lasts. So it's it's a temporary appointment, but you can still uh, fill empty slots uh, without the consent of the Senate. Section three, he shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. He may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses of or either of them, and in the case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the United States. So again, this is um, not just, uh, no, so this is going beyond just who can you appoint, but now it's just like, who do you commission? And that's basically everybody who represents the United States in the, in essentially in the federal bureaucracy. But the other thing I, to point here is, to point out here is that uh, the first part of this is about giving the State of the Union address. Uh, the State of the Union address is actually constitutionally mandated. Now, what's not constitutionally mandated is that the president actually do it in the form of a speech. Uh, previously, uh, or early on, rather, uh, presidents often sent their comments as a document uh, to Congress to read. Uh, it was, and that's what it was. It's only more recently that we've started to see the State of the Union become kind of like this big pomp and circumstance event with a big speech and everything like that. The other interesting thing to know about the State of the Union is that it says from time to time. It doesn't mandate a specific timeline but we do it annually anyway. So it's kind of interesting to see how the Constitution kind of gives pretty broad parameters, but then uh, we're allowed us, there's, a, there's an allowable certain flexibility that allows for uh, different approaches or things to be done. And this creates different, you know, based on how popular an approach might be, like say giving a televised speech as opposed to sending Congress a report, uh, this might be what um, leads to a sense of tradition uh, developing around a certain practice. Section four, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Again, like I was saying earlier, a good example of 
kind of like having some pretty broad contours or lines within which to, to work. When it comes to impeaching a president and removing someone from office, and the president, vice president, and all civil officers refers to, you know, it could be the president, it could be the vice president, it could be a head of um, head of a bureaucratic department like the secretary of state or somebody. Uh, they can be removed from office, and it lays out what they can be removed from office for: treason, and also notes that it has to be a two-stage process: impeached, and that's done by the House, and then conviction, that's done by the Senate. It can be by, for treason, bribery. And that says this, other high crimes and misdemeanors. And those high crimes and misdemeanors, that is a more a broader category. So it's kind of interesting to note the two very specific things you are to be removed from office from upon conviction. That's treason, which is pretty obvious. If you're going to betray uh, your country, you have no business running it. And then bribery, which I find kind of interesting, but it makes sense because in the revolutionary experience of the United States, one of the things that drove the uh, the American Revolution was the fact that um, that governors were appointed by the king, governors of the colonies were appointed by the king and other officers like tax revenue officers also appointed by the king. And uh, the king moved to take increasingly increasing amounts of control away from um, away from parliament and over the American colonies to rule them directly. And this is what drove so much um so much American angst towards the King of England, uh, so much angst towards uh, towards you know taxes or colonial governors as representatives of the crown, and also is what led to what uh, also what led to this concern for really circumscribing and trying to limit the executive power. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting that bribery shows up as being this uh, one of two very specific, uh, crimes that just, uh, are, there's no toleration for whatsoever. Understandable given the context, but interesting that still those two, it's very contextually defined, uh, understood that way. So that's section, uh, that's article two, sorry, not section two. That's article two of the U S constitution outlining the, uh, role of the president of the United States and the powers of that office. What I find interesting is that this is actually a much shorter article than article one, uh, which kind of speaks a little bit to the limited role the um, the founders ha- you know envisioned for the presidency and is in some ways so very different uh, from the presidency that we have today. You could argue though that because this is a shorter, maybe more vaguely worded article, that it gives greater room for interpretation, greater room for application and expansion of presidential power. That I, I suppose an argument can be made for that, but a big part of this was for the shortness of Article Two. I think is to consider how much of this is formal. There's very little uh, what could be said to be real power that the president gets to leverage unilaterally, almost exclusively in the realm of the military. But it's still, uh, and by extension, foreign policy. But that, even that is still uh, really circumscribed by Congress. Its ability to control the budget of the military. Uh, its ability to, you know, shorten uh, the terms of funding for the army, as we discussed in Article One. So, I mean, even then, even in the areas of where the president has arguably the most amount of room to affect policy, there's a lot of congressional oversight and control. So, it's kind of fascinating to me to consider the degree to which the office of the president has become so central, so powerful, and so influential in American politics. Because just if you just do a plain uh, you know, on its face reading of Article 1 and 2, if I were to put them next to each other, it looked like Congress was the one calling the major shots and the president was more or less just the facilitator of 
of things Congress was doing. And in many respects, it almost feels like it's been reversed in, in our world today. So in light of that, a question you might want to consider as you think through the powers of the presidency and how powerful you want your president to be, uh, a question I have would be to what degree is the current office of the president grown or contracted relative to Article 2 and in what specific areas? So it's an open-ended question. It's designed to help us think through you know, where is the power of the presidency in flux? Because a lot of times there, there's kind of two major narratives in America today over the presidency. And generally one of the narratives is the presidency is just ever expanding in power. Uh, the, another narrative might be that uh, the presidency still is still is limited in what the president can do. Uh, and then that creates all sorts of consternation when people don't see the president taking particular actions. And so people think the president should actually have more power. So it's interesting to see those two narratives. And it's interesting to note the areas of policy where those arguments come into play. And just uh, you know put those, put those up against Article 2 and just ask the basic question is, is this something the president should even be reasonably expected to do given the constraints of the Constitution? If you'd like to do some more reading on uh, the office of the president or the... Uh, or just the debate over the powers of the president. There's a couple of additional resources. I'll add in the show notes the resources I had from last time. So this is going to be like the uh, the transcript of the Constitution from the National Archives, the, the, the commentary on the Constitution, the uh, congressional uh, annotated Constitution. And I'll link to the Article 1 podcast as well. But I want to add two new sources to this list, and that is Charles Kessler's uh, version, or not version, but edition of the Federalist Papers. Charles Kessler is widely considered to be one of the major scholars in America living today on the uh, Federalist Papers and kind of wrote the definitive textbook on them or the definitive edition, commentary, whatever you want to call it, on the Federalist Papers. I'll link to that. And then the Center for the Study of the American Constitution at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, has a really cool page. It's called The Debate Over the President and the Executive Branch, and it has links to a number of Federalist and Anti-Federalist writings uh, debating the presidency, its powers, and everything. And so it's a cool way that you can get a quick snapshot into kind of the fundamental debate over political power at the Constitutional Convention, and that was over, you know, just how much power should the executive have. That largely broke down along anti-federalist and federalist lines, and you can get a snapshot on that webpage uh, from the primary sources that are available there over just what some of the ideas and concerns were. And one of those concerns from an anti-federalist of the time is the last word for today. Uh, and it's a quote from George Mason's Objections to the Constitution of Government Formed by the Convention. He wrote it around September 17th, 1787. And here's what he said about the Office of the President. Maybe you can use this to, to frame how you might answer the question I asked earlier. The President of the United States has no constitutional counsel, a thing unknown in any safe and regular government. He will therefore be unsupported by proper information and advice and will generally be directed by minions and favorites, or he will become a tool to the Senate, or a council of state will grow out of the principal officers of the great departments, the worst and most dangerous of all ingredients for such a council in a free country, for they may be induced to join in any dangerous or oppressive measures to shelter themselves and prevent an inquiry into their own misconduct in office. So in some level, it seems that George Mason is, you know, over 200 years or so ago, uh, expressing concern over the uh, lack of oversight over the office of the president and the ability the presidents will have to surround themselves with more or less yes men, yes women, I guess, and um, and 
kind of he kind of speaks to what we would call today essentially I guess you'd say a deep state uh, or a blob if they refer to the foreign policy um, establishment and this tendency to want to shelter and protect itself against inquiry into official misconduct and so uh, that's one of the things that George Mason saw as being a major concern uh, with the office of the president is that it just was not formally structured enough and that would lead to all manner of foul play. So we got plenty of history to look at. How right was George Mason in evaluating the presidency? I will leave that to you to discuss. Or you know what? I'll do this. I did not anticipate doing this at the end of this episode, but if you subscribe to the Tim Talks Politics newsletter at timtalkspolitics.substack.com, uh, we have the ability to actually start discussion threads. So I'll actually post some of these questions along with this podcast in there. And if you uh, subscribe um, to the, the newsletter and uh, and essentially the podcast, uh, by subscribing there and becoming a, subs- a subscriber, you can uh, get access to that discussion and we can kick that idea around. Uh, so And right now, um, subscribe, listeners to the podcast get a discount on the uh, on the newsletter and subscribing to Tim Talks Politics. So go to timtalkspolitics.substack.com backslash podcast and to lock in that discount and you will be able to log on, see this, uh, see this uh, podcast and engage in the discussion on it. Look forward to seeing you there. Have a good one. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast.